I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. So, this brutal house is... Um, a protest novel, I see it as, and it's set against the sort of backdrop. It's set in New York against the a backdrop of the sort of voguing ball scene. Um, so the book starts on the steps of City Hall in New York, and there's five ageing mothers, and by mothers I mean the founders of the ball houses, the voguing houses in New York, who have decided after a sort of late religious conversion to, to start a silent protest. And basically they're protesting against the disappearance of children from their houses over the years, whether through homophobic, transphobic violence, poverty, whatever. And over the years they've tried to address those disappearances in many different ways, through um, legal channels, through political ways, through, pro, you know, through more vocal protests, and nothing's really happened. So this is the day where they decide that actually a protest where they don't speak and they are going to represent themselves as literally a physical mass until they get the answers they want is what's going to happen and that's basically what sets up the whole book. So what I'm going to read from it for you is a really early part from the novel which sort of... Also the other thing I should say to you is it is written in a collective voice so it, they are known as we. So it's very much about... A, I wanted to basically have a voice that spoke as like as one consciousness, almost that it was like a sort of unwritten sort of social history in a way. Um, so they they basically don't speak pretty much throughout the whole novel. So all you hear is this one collective voice. So what I'm going to read is a section where they're sort of explaining how they got to the point where they decided that they would do this protest as a silent protest. We reached our position through trial and error, wasted years adhering to the official channels of complaint, registering our dissent through community action and the ballot box, years of putting faith into the power of statistics at the ballot box, how power could be swayed by tipping the balance in marginal precincts, our energy focused on the campaign trail, believing that it was in our power to inform and persuade. When that failed, we attempted direct action. We recognised that we didn't have decades to regroup politically, nor did we have the taste for it. Patronised and belittled, forced into a ghetto they viewed as essential to our enlightenment. Taking to the streets in the spirit of our community organising and activist forebears, an arsenal of placards and loudspeakers, baseball bats and rocks. Their thinking was that we would fear the rows of turned-out riot police, military in their bearing, but as threatening as country barn dancers. That tear gas would contain us when we'd lived with nightclub smoke machines most of our adult lives and learned to see how to see past the mist. We were pissed and no longer afraid. We finally had use for the bodies we'd spent so long starving and pumping. We learned the power of our physical strength, all that we'd shied away from as children we discovered now. How far a rock can be thrown by a single hand, the furthest we could run when chased, the speed at which our blood glucose was assimilated after physical exertion, the power of our voices, the solidity of our fists. Battles on our neighbourhood street corners, blood spilling onto the steps of our markets and dry cleaners. 
We took pleasure in learning that a punch landed correctly upon soft flesh is a tangible result, one that cannot be discounted as an ineligible vote by Righteous Town Hall staff or lost in city administration paperwork lodged amongst stacks of other investigations. We understood how fear could be successfully employed to our ends if we remained consistent in both our actions and our number, that we were not the weaker party in these episodes. Our knowledge of the streets, our physical prowess and the force of our anger propelled us further than we would have otherwise dared. We found success through rioting, making our dissatisfaction known, but effecting prolonged change was harder still. We were not prepared. What we'd not factored on was how our spirit would be weakened by a sustained assault on our home streets, how it was impossible to switch off, smoke and blood trailing our movements, the imprint of a gloved fist sending us to sleep atop our battlefields. The owner of the dry cleaners, for example, beaten by the police, mistaking him for one of us, but not the us they were thinking of. Our voice was strong, but there was nothing healthy in our attitude, often ready to turn on each other rather than concede a slight against the opposing side. Long after the police lines dispersed and our long-cherished complaints were addressed, we remained ghoul-like in our ghettos, fighting our shadow. Only through prayer did we remember ourselves and our capabilities. So, um, that's so beautiful, by the way. <laughs> So my book is about the mainstream of queer culture, basically, in a sentence, but um, it's particularly about the ambivalence I was personally feeling a couple of years ago about things like same-sex marriage and more heteronormative choices and wanting to live a more kind of queer or radical life and really feeling like I, feeling like I was caught between this binary and I had to choose between these things. So I link that to wider um, queer culture and basically this moment we're living in where we have all these new freedoms and choices um, and LGBT culture has never been so mainstream. So we have same-sex marriage, we have drag race being watched in all these different countries, we have um, big banks sponsoring Pride and I think we're kind of at this strange moment where we have this sort of decision to make about whether to assimilate or whether to sort of hold on to something more subversive or radical or underground about queer culture. So the book is really my exploration of that and, and whether we do in fact need to choose. And the bit I'm going to read you is from a chapter called In the Beginning There Were Gay Bars. It's about the place I was at when I really first started thinking about the book, which was when in the early 2000s a lot of the gay bars I used to go to started closing one by one. And I, I'd spent so much time in these bars and like they were really where I found myself. And I, I wanted to know why they were closing and like what some of the reasons were. So I'm going to read you a little bit from that. And I think it explains some of my motivation when I initially started thinking about writing the book and thinking about the mainstreaming of queer culture. A few weeks after I returned from LA, I found myself sitting in a circle of people in a drafty London warehouse. We started by going around the group, sharing our name, our pronouns, and why we were there. Some were first-timers who had read about the campaign online and explained that they were looking to do more activism. Then there were the core members, who'd been going to the meetings for three years. I was there as a journalist, I said, who was thinking of writing an article to raise awareness about the campaign. Which was true, but I was also short on work. Things had been looking up for me in my personal life since Iceland and LA. I was still dating Emily, the lawyer, crying less while she was asleep next to me. And although I wasn't totally sure that I was ready for anything as serious as what I'd had with Salka, we continued hanging out. Something about the relationship just felt promising. But work-wise, I was listless and still out of a full-time job. So I had decided to throw myself into writing about LGBTQ issues again. Only now I was regretting it. Sitting from, across from me was someone I'd ended things with on the third date four years ago her eyes boring into my soul. We were there at the meeting to talk about resurrecting my favorite gay bar, the Joiner's Arms, a now defunct but legendary place, a grimy one-story, one-room bar-cum-club with a pool table in the center that had made it look like a depraved youth club. It opened in 1997 and had been going for 12 years when I first arrived, although I knew people like the designer Alex Sorry, although I knew people like the designer Alexander McQueen and photographer Wolfgang Tillmans had long since partied within its four walls, I never felt I'd missed the zeitgeist. 
not even when it was near empty on karaoke Tuesdays. I remember Beth Ditto from The Gossip turning up at the joiners and singing at karaoke, my friends trying to chat up the gay members of the XX, which isn't to emphasize its celebrity cachet, but to illustrate the fact that it put everyone on an equal playing field. It was famously cheap, welcoming and uninhibited. The air always felt thick with possibility, as well as the odor of sweat and testosterone. It was a male-dominated space, although transgender matriarch Stephanie always propped up the bar and Sunday nights were full of women. Between the pub itself and the local all-hours after-parties, you could spend most of your weekend in or around the joiners, emerging wide-eyed on Monday morning in an outfit that had somehow seemed like a good idea on Friday night. And I did. Between 2009 and 2012, I went to the joiners' arms along with one or two other gay bars pretty much every weekend. The blueprint was always the same. I would arrive already drunk, probably with one gay male friend and one straight girlfriend who'd been pissed off that she'd lost by majority rule and been dragged along. Then we'd swiftly get drunker to acclimatize. Then, as these were the days before dating apps, we would survey the room, our cruising ground, or even circle it, depending on the floor plan that evening, looking for people we might be attracted to. Sometimes I'd ask my straight friend to flirt with me to drum up attention. <laughs> Over the course of the evening, we would work up the courage to hit on people. Four out of five times, the attempt would fail, and I'd leave with my gay male friend, the straight one having left out of boredom hours ago. On the night bus or on the walk home, we'd lament the fact that no one but each other wanted to accompany us, a ritual that brought us closer together. Sometimes we'd go into another club to continue the party, like East Block, an underground techno and house club near Old Street with Keith Haring-esque paintings on its black walls and a labyrinth of corridors and rooms, the only place I've ever taken drugs that I found on the floor. I really just wanted to read that bit in the LRB. <laughs> <laughs> the joiners closed in January 2015 after property developers snapped up the land. A lot like Brooklyn in New York, Hackney was an area of London that had become increasingly expensive since artists, gallerists and fashion designers took advantage of the comparatively cheap rent there in the 90s and 2000s. The bar wasn't struggling for customers. It was full every weekend until its dying day. It just got priced out. The elderly landlord, David Pollard, had rented the building from a brewery. And when the brewery sold the land to property developers, he was informed that his lease was not going to be renewed. It turned out that developers had also purchased the adjacent buildings on the street and planned to turn the site into a block of luxury flats. These flats would contribute to the shiny, new, gentrified facade of Hackney, a process that saw locally owned businesses replaced with chain restaurants and hip coffee shops, while low-income families living in the surrounding council houses were also priced out. In the years between 2006 and 2016, London became a gay bar graveyard. In this decade, 58% of London's gay bars closed their doors, compared with 44% of non-LGBTQ plus nightlife venues. I didn't really care so much about Candy Bar, one of the first I noticed to go a gay bar for women in Soho that closed in January 2014 after a 50% rent increase, although it did look like a brilliant caricature of a lesbian bar, all glittery interiors and a clientele in fedora hats, like something off the TV show The L Word. Personally, I preferred mixed spaces and cared more about the closure of Escape and Madame Jojo's, two fun clubs next to one another in Soho. The former, a generic gay bar that could have been in any city in the UK, with its rainbow neon lights and pop chart playlists. The latter, an iconic Dragon Cabaret Club that had been hosting more and more straight nights over the last few years for economic reasons. Soho, London's foremost gay neighbourhood, was the area suffering hardest, but there were closures all over the city. The Black Cap, a beloved drag pub in Camden, the Georgian Dragon, a gay pub in Shoreditch, and Hoist, an S&M club in Vauxhall. So many clothes that it felt as though we lost another every couple of weeks. My gay friends grieved, while many of my straight fans failed to notice. Other cities were undergoing a similar transformation. In Manchester, the queer as folk heyday of the 1990s and early 2000s gave way to a spate of closures, including the popular bars Taurus and Eden. New York's Chelsea lost a number of its gay bars to drugstores and bank chains during the 2010s. And a th similar thing happened in San Francisco, due in part to the invasion of the tech industry. Like San Francisco, the reason London seemed to be hit particularly hard was due to its high land value. In 2016, it became the city with the most expensive rents in Europe. 
Yes, many gay bars couldn't afford to hold ground, but with these high rents and a high cost of living, a lot of my friends couldn't afford to go to them quite so often either. However, the closure of London gay bars wasn't just down to the economic situation. Many argued that they were casualty of the cultural climate for LGBTQ plus people. Shortly after the joiners shut up shop, I decided to start writing about the club closures for work, which perhaps ironically caused me to sober up and ask myself the bigger questions about what was happening to these places. In talking to LGBTQ people for the articles I wrote, a new idea emerged, that the physical gentrification of the city wasn't the full story, that our desire to go to gay clubs itself might be on the wane. If marriage rights and parenting rights were an upshot of our acceptance, the closure of gay bars might be the downside. After all, why would you need to go to gay bars if your sexuality no longer had to define you, or if you were at home looking after a baby? Okay, so I'm going to read um, a bit, just a little bit from the beginning of my book as well. And I'm not going to say too much about it. As I said, it's like what they just they call like formally innovative fiction, but it's not abstract or anything like that. So it's got like a kind of a narrative hook going on in it as well. I think that's all I'm going to say about it. It kind of has lots of autobiographical elements in it, but I won't tell you which ones they are. <laughs> it um, also kind of uses, works a lot with references. So one of the characters, it uses, there's like, kind of like some references to contemporary cultures, like Netflix series and stuff like that in there. And then there's also some references to what I now call canonical avant-garde literature, like B.S. Johnson, you know that British novelist? So there's, um, I'm borrowing one of the villains from B.S. Johnson's book. So I'm doing lots of stuff like that as well, but you'll see. Uh, but actually, really, it's about queerness and class now. That's what it's doing. This first chapter is called War Crybabies. I look like 11 from Stranger Things. I'm 36. Similar hair, similar face, similar fears, in brackets, childhood terrors. I will not grow out my hair at the next opportunity, in brackets, season two. <laughs> Hello? Where am I? I'm alone on a beach, in brackets, what beach? It's early, it's cold, where's my blue worker's jacket? It's raining lightly, in brackets, a British beach. Hello? Where is everyone? Oh good, it's getting lighter over the Solent. In brackets, the stretch of water that separates the Isle of Wight from the British mainland. This is the Isle of Wight of the south coast of England, the beach outside Ride. One, two, three Victorian military fort, forts in the Solent, an early indication they have a thing about foreign invasions down here. <laughs> Other than that, the beach is reassuringly pretty. Pinks and whites in this situation, ochres. I take in the sea air, so far so good. But looking at the sea won't help. I have talents, I'll use them. A soldier, look. The soldier is wearing an army green t-shirt with black polar bears on it. What does it mean? Black oversized joggers, white Reebok, classic trainers. The pronoun is they. The soldier signals to include the black polar bears, the white Reeboks. Okay, I say. Like me, Shay, in brackets the soldier, the polar bears and the Reeboks are new to the Isle of Wight. They are second generation economic migrants, in brackets Shay, ecological refugees, in brackets the polar bears, and African elopers, I mean antelopes, in brackets the Reeboks, from northwest London. They are mobilizing to storm a fort in the Solent for military training purposes. Come, Shay asks. Yes, I reply wholeheartedly. My phone rings. Hello. According to the fraud detection team, someone, in brackets, not me, attempted to pay £85 to poker stars, then £500 to Paddy Power, in brackets, betting sites, using my debit card. The fraud detection team cancelled my debit card with me on the beach. By the time I get off the phone, the moment to storm the fort has passed me aboard. The Isle of Wight is home to a large working class demographic. Shay, for one, works in a hotel in Ride. Minimum wage rates, Shay says, but free board and lodging. Not bad as far as it goes. I have no money, no debit card. I interview for a job. This is the manager, House Mother Normal, formerly of B.S. Johnson's eponymous novel from 1971 pertaining to British avant-garde literature. House Mother Normal eyes me up. She looks unconvinced. 
Permission to work in the UK, yes, in brackets, EU national. Ability to communicate effectively in English, so, so. Work experience, 20 years of it, in brackets. I have worked in all areas of the British hospitality and retail sectors. Kitchen, yes, in brackets, dying inside. <laughs> when can you start? Yesterday. A styrofoam box containing raw squid and inky ice arrives in the kitchen. I get to it, I perch entire beaches and tiny digestive tracts from maritime bodies. Sand and intestines accumulate in the waste bucket. I'm building a private, private beach gutting squid. What if this were my beach? In brackets, sandy refuse collecting in a bucket. What if this were my storm? In brackets, my fort in the Solent. I drop a cocktail umbrella into the bucket. It's like a beach parasol, only it lies on its side. Freak weather events are fairly common on the Isle of Wight. Incidentally, the sea is yellow, in brackets, yellow for volatile. I'm not going in this, I say. The polar bears survey the coastline for a while. The Reeboks get halfway to the fort before they abort. Let's regroup tomorrow, she says. The polar bears are novelists, in brackets, infantry soldiers. The Reeboks are poets, in brackets, intelligence operatives. Given how busy Shay and I are, toiling, that's a beautiful thing. When they're not pursuing their aspirations, in brackets, writing, the novelists and poets like to gnaw on raw squid. I deposit a saucerful under the kitchen sink. No one will notice. Good morning, it's house mother normal patrolling her kitchen. I employ my foot to push the, push the saucer of squid further under the kitchen sink where the polar bears and the Reeboks are hiding with bated breath. Cut triangles, that's it, house mother normal says, nice and even. Then the arms, or is it tentacles, yeah. Pieces like hula skirts, ha ha. Put one round your finger like this. Crikey, a lot of waste in your bucket. Can you make soup? Don't bother rinsing, just boil the lot. The sand will sink to the bottom of its own accord. About your contract, house mother normal says, yes, I'm all ears. We'll keep it under the tax threshold, shall we? No national insurance contributions, no sick pay, no holidays. Okay, I say, in brackets, not okay. The original B.S. Johnson's house mother normal is in charge of a fictional nursing home. She has sidelines on the go, like watering down vodka or altering the labeling of penicillin bottles for underhand profit. She exploits and abuses those in her care. I want you to pour about a quarter of these bottles into one of the empty ones here until it's three quarters full, she says to an elderly resident at one point. Three bottles pour a quarter out of, that is, until this one's also three quarters full. And when you've got them all three quarters full, then top them up with water from your tub. The rec recreational activities she provides are, if anything, worse. There's the plastic parcel game, in brackets, Roll the dice when a six comes up, put on a hat and oven gloves quick as you can and hack away at the parcel until you either attain the gift of chocolate inside or someone else throws a six, whatever comes first. Turns out there's no chocolate inside this parcel, only dog shit. That's B.S. Johnson actually. Um, only dog shit. Violent character is B.S. Johnson's house mother normal. But B.S. Johnson violates house mother normal in turn, putting her through a public masturbation, I mean bestiality scene, with dog Ralphie, not once, not twice, but nine times over the course of the novel. Ghastly, really, but funny. Funny's important. It was a different time. Some B.S. there, B.S. Johnson. Funnily enough, this is now. This isn't a nursing home in 70s London, this is a no-star hotel in present-day ride. Like B.S. Johnson's, our house mother normal is a bully and exploiter. But if she has the original's entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial flair and resourcefulness, then so do we. We have talents, we'll use them. And who knows who's got what sexual kinks? No one knows, least of all me. I'm only new. I'm petrified of house mother normal. Yeah, I'm petrified. I'm, I'm also petrified of the Isle of Wight after reading that. So, can I, can I ask you a question first? Yeah, go on. So, A, I'm really fascinated by why you chose to set it on the Isle of Wight. And also, 
So the narrator is unnamed. Yeah. Or you call is so I, in my head I say eleven. Yeah. So eleven. <laughs> so what I was really interested in was a why you set it there. Yeah. But b, I mean. Yeah, I say it. Okay. Say the, say Sorry, the I didn't want to ruin the spoiler. <laughs> so for me, so when this book came out, I was really raving about it on Twitter and stuff because. And the first thing I said on Twitter was, while everyone is wringing their hands about writing a Brexit novel, basically Isabel just did it in a really amazing... <laughs> yeah. it, it, it is so... A, it's just a really amazing work of fiction, but I just love how it's just so set in a very specific political, cultural moment. So my question to you really is, could you do... A, why did you set it in the EI of White? Because I'm obsessed. But B, do you think that actually you could have taken that story outside of this particular moment or was, was the moment dictated by the, st by the story of those two and vice versa? Yeah, good question. They, because they hang together. Yeah, very much so. so. That's a really good question. So the reason why I chose the Isle of Wight, and I am sort of, um, I'm using the Isle of Wight particularly to explore class. That's sort of what I, that's like the, the serious response to it. I know it well because my partner's from down there. She's from Portsmouth. So I go there actually regularly. But kind of these British seaside towns, they kind of occupy this really kind of mythical place in the British psyche, I found. And there's like, um, but at the same time, the Isle of Wight, is like, it's been really suffering, you know, under two Tory governments. This place is totally disinvested and the uh, huge working class population, the place is falling to pieces. So I'm kind of like setting, setting the whole story there because we have, th we have that kind of really neglected sort of provincial setting of the Isle of Wight, but that at the same time does something that other provincial places don't do because it's set by the sea. So it also has um, really rich people still having their summer homes there. So it's like the discrepancy, the class discrepancy that's happening there on this like really small scale on like some sort of micro scale is what I think makes it attractive as a setting. Also, it's the place that has the least, in terms of Brexit, like, sorry for saying the word, <laughs> it's, it's got the least, the, it's the place with the least immigration in the whole of the UK, and it's got one of the highest Brexit votes. So it's like... What a surprise. <laughs> you, you know? <laughs> what a surprise. So yeah, I guess that, that's, yeah, sure. that's the response to that. Can I, can I ask you a question about your book? So reading think, it, why it's so witty, but also... I'm just so interested in how your mind works when you're writing because these things like objects kind of appear. It actually really reminded me of like old video games. It's quite That's glitchy cool. and then kind of objects appear and they're kind of totems and then they disappear. I love it. <laughs> um, but what is your writing process? Like how do you, how do you yeah. construct that? And because things seem to kind of just come through your consciousness. Yeah. Yeah, I think I it's a really good question. And it's kind of like the, the, the simple answer is I guess like both you guys, it's like more like a, it's not a, the pro, it's not so much of a process, it's like a practice that developed over so many years. Mm. I mean, I'm like in my mid-40s now and I've been doing this kind of writing since my mid-late mid 20s and it's just kind of developed in this way. And it does do, so I guess I trained my mind. It goes off on constant tangents, but I at the same time sort of want to pursue particular projects, in this case to explore practices in relation to queerness and class. So it has like a narrative, but the narrative is not really linear. linear. It's a different kind of thing. Yeah. Thanks for that question. No, can, can I kind of ask you the same mm. question? Because I'm interested in the form of your book as well. Um, there are, I love the, without doing a spoiler, but there's like a bit in the middle that's so amazing, which is the part, <laughs> it's like a whole chapter from the I know it's kind of in a wee, but it's kind of from the perspective of the bogan caller. Yeah. And it's so, it's so genius and funny. Um, well, basically, I knew quite early on that it was sort of going to be a novel of voices and that the collective voice was going to be sort of the dominant thing through it. But it's, it's quite a... It's quite an intense voice, and that you can't really sustain that through a whole novel. Mm. So half the book is narrated by the mothers as the we, and as the protest is happening, and then the other half is narrated by a guy called Teddy, who's basically one of the children who the mothers has given shelter in the voguing houses over the years, and he basically goes goes to college and ends up working for the city in his way of trying to pay the mothers back for the sort of shelter that they've given is to find is find is to find a way to protect them through things like city policy and infrastructure 
but but that's sort of that's written in a he so basically you get a far more kind of direct line to the sort of mindset of what it would be like to shelter to you know to have that you know because it's not that family and chosen family so you have sort of a, a parent side and a child side but then in the middle of that because it's it's based around ball culture but it's not really a novel about voguing per se it just I wanted to write about the balls in a way that didn't necessarily feel that predictable. And, you know, those kind of novels have been done and that wasn't, you know, really interesting to me. But because it's a novel about voices, I'm really obsessed with Vogue callers generally. You know, it's very much, you know, from the same sort of um, vibe as, say, like a hip-hop MC. So it's about really about thinking on your feet. It's about wordplay. It's about, you know, obviously for queer culture, it's about reading. Um, so that became a really important part of the book so there's just a couple of chapters sections in the middle of the book that sort of punctuate this narrative where you have a vogue caller sort of just you know vogue calling basically um and they come at sort of specific stages in the book that sort of delineate delineate kind of a sort of a past and memory of of what that culture was when they were at their prime because a lot of the book is about um you know, they're like mini King Liz. It's very much about sort of lament. They're sort of really, they're sort of trying to tackle injustice in their community. But it's also on a more personal level, really, about the sort of lessening of their own power as they get older. Because, you know, children grow up and move away. So it's very much about that sort of readdressing how they find their power again and to fight against what they feel is sort of, you know, the invisibility as you go sort of through and past middle age. But to follow up on, I think one of the most, one of the things that really interested me about your book and what I think is really inspired and that I haven't seen done in a way at all, and there's tons of things about it, but I think it's, so basically you're using ballroom culture, but you're not writing about it, how it developed in the 80s or 90s, that's like kind of like the narrative that we're sort yeah. of become used to, like, you know, like poses on TV now, things like that, like Paris is burn burning, probably everybody has... Lots of people have seen by now, and you can't improve on that. No, that, and also, and why would you? Why would you but want what, to? What's know, super interesting is then also like you kind of then so you set it in now, but that also means that like the main characters, or at least some of them, the mothers, they are now more aged. They're like older now. Yeah. And this is kind of so interesting because we've got such a like obsession with youth in queer culture that I think the idea that like in a way the aging queens are sort of foregrounded. Mm. You know, like this is the kind of figure that normally is forgot, totally forgotten, like the aging queen, like the, it's like a classic stereotype, you know, they're now at home, like addicted to opioids or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. You know, that stereotype, I mean, you really like foreground these, yeah. these characters and we don't see that anywhere in popular culture really like. But they still, I mean, you, and you talk about this in your book as well, you know, those kind of, the, this, I don't want to say elders, but you know, the people who came before you. Yeah still you know in terms of what they pass forward and what they still yeah. represent to the community is still like a massive massive thing I agree. so yeah i really felt that it had to come from those voices in that way but also because i was really interested for a really long time in writing about a religious order um you know particularly thinking a lot about like cistercian monks and you know like you know the apostles before the gospels that whole thing And this was really my way of channeling that because I want it to feel that it has this sort of, that it feels like a, a movement. I don't want to say brotherhood, but it feels like a sort of movement. I remember when, um, sorry, hideous name drop, when my friend Max Porter read it, and he said, <laughs> the first thing he said to me was, it feels like the private diaries of like saints. And I was like, that's, that's exactly the sort of thing You know what I mean? They're sort of older, they're wounded, yeah. but they're like one sort of critical mass, and that's kind of how I wanted it to speak. And that's because we don't have totally that in queer culture, so I wanted yeah. to use it and frame it in that kind of way. Because it's got this like sort of elegiac, is that the word? Like it's got like some sort of a kind of like almost a religious tone, like when the, yeah, when they, the mother speaks, yeah. like they sort of preach, like in, don't yeah. they, in yeah. a way? It's it, you wanted to. I wanted it to feel that it was sort of a bit sort of otherworldly, and also because they do go through this sort of late stage <laughs> religious conversion, where because they've they've never been able to find out why half these children have disappeared, and they've tried to explain it every other way. They end up going back to where they started from as children and just going into churches, not because they're particularly religious, but again, I was interested in in that thing of ha what it is with people who are you know, and I'm not religious in any way, but I'm always interested in in what is it with people who have to find a reason to turn to religion when they can't find any other explanation and they're already um 
you know, they're more humanist anyway, so I'm interested in that kind of thing. Mm. And that has influenced them in that particular action and actually just in how they carry and how they, they speak because they understand the power of speaking in that one voice. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to ask you actually about the character Teddy, um, who I guess, not that it really has like main characters, but I mm. guess Teddy is want of a better term yeah um i mean it is his book in a lot of ways i think yeah. in terms of how you can as a reader really find something to kind of identify yeah and i i guess i really did identify with that because i felt like that was quite a strong link between both our books which is that teddy is this figure that's part of the establishment but also kind of comes from this like yeah. more kind of marginalized yeah for group sure. of people and I, wa I wondered whether you kind of felt any affinity with him because you, I know that you wrote from experience and that's why you've got the language so right because you were part of these like clubbing scenes mm. and experienced that. But then also have this sort of privilege of that you're the person that's able to write this down and get this published. So you kind of negotiate these two worlds in the same way as Teddy maybe, but I don't know if that's really <laughs> into it. I never thought of it that way. No. <laughs> I just, I mean... I think, you know, when I'm writing, I'm always thinking about overall in terms of, like, how it balances tonally. And they just really balanced each other. And, and his story needed to be told in a very sort of direct way in terms of his lived experience of being taken in by the mothers and, you know, being allowed to sort of flourish in life. Because the narrative normally is that actually... And, you know, half the story of the book is obviously about the kids who didn't flourish, who disappeared or who left, you know, whatever. So I kind of wanted to show that and really to show kind of, you're right, that kind of struggle in terms of how do you pay a debt that you feel that you cannot repay to your own community? Mm. You know, when you talk about that in your book, so that amazing chapter about gentrification where you talk about the joiners, then you have this amazing conversation with our mutual friend Geoffrey Hinton, who's obviously been around for years and for a lot of people is, is, is someone who basically just gives you so much in terms of learning about what the culture is and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it's very, very similar. Why did you decide to do it that way? Because you, you could have just written it about literally a very linear kind of the fight for the joiners. And actually, it was just what I like about the whole book, actually, is how the way you've picked... Actually, let me rephrase that. How did you pick the people to be in the book? Because what I really like yeah. about it is the way the people that you have pulled in through lots of, you know, lots of different sections in terms of ages, diversities, all that kind of stuff. And they all offer different things and they have this massive space in which to really speak their truth, which I think is, you know, and you don't intervene in that. I think it's really amazing. So how did you decide to uh, do it in that way? Well, I guess the, the basic structure of the book is kind of like the, the pros of increased equality or acceptance or mainstreaming, so things like same-sex marriage and, and what it means to have more choice. Then I look at the kind of drawbacks, that's where Gay Bar's chapter comes in. It's like, what kind of erasure do we get um, through the mainstreaming of culture? Like, for example, queer spaces closing. And then it's how far does that idea of equality really extend? So I go to places like Turkey mm. where it's not illegal, homosexuality is not illegal, but, you know, it's like really driven underground um, and violence is, is quite rife um, so that's the basic structure and then in each chapter I pick a location and a, a story about our mainstreaming or a story within that and then on top of that I, I kind of just picked things I'd written about before in my work as a journalist so I'd written about um, trans models before so in the chapter I go to tr explore trans model agencies and media visibility something I'd written about so I had some connections and then also I chose places where maybe I knew someone yeah. uh, so that I could sleep on their sofa and save a bit of money. But it comes across like that as well. So yeah. there's like this method of, there's always, whilst there's like, um, there's also, the, you are kind of like the, the connecting factor. Obviously. Yeah, your personal <laughs> narrative as it yeah. in the book is, 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 is really brilliant. Yeah, just the only place I really pitched up and I didn't know anyone or know what I was doing was Serbia for, for going to Belgrade Pride. And I found that, when I turned up somewhere and I said, I want to explore what Pride is like in Belgrade, and I kind of contacted a couple of journalists and LGBT organisations, and people were so forthcoming, especially there, because their, their stance was like the international LGBT community aren't interested in us or aren't interested in Eastern Europe and how, how far behind things are. So everyone was really helpful. And people were also helpful because they just kind of got the project and were interested in the conversation. I think that the main thing I learned writing it was that as, as much sort of mainstreaming or assimilation is going on, we're still this 
LGBT family and people just sort of say, you're queer, I'm queer, cool, I'm going to help you. And that mm. was probably the most heartening thing about writing the book. And that really comes through. That felt really possible. And, and that's one of the questions that, I, that questions that I wanted to ask you. So how do you see, do you think there still is such a thing as queer community, LGBTQI community? And is that now, do you see, like say, do you think there's still like a London queer scene, so to speak? Um, and like now you talk like that we've talked about the closure of all these places mm. does it kind of look differently or how do you what do you feel about that um i think there's i think as we've become more conscious of sort of intersectionality as well we see this like smaller groupings of people um and in some ways that's quite sad and in some ways that's a good thing like it's good that sort of smaller groups with things in common are finding one another and i think the, the bigger things like pride get or the more corporate things like gay bars get, if you look at like the GAY, like franchise, like a chain, there's always a backlash to that and there will always be sort of new things arising or splinter events. So I think pride is a really, really good example and it's pride month so it feels relevant to talk about it, I guess, which is so many of us feel quite grossed out when we go to London Pride because there's these big banks or there's things like BA systems or UKIP there and, and it just feels a bit gross basically just on an emotional level but then you know so people don't want to go but then they start they start new things and I think that's really amazing and important uh, it's just been announced that there's going to be London Trans Pride got something called Queer Picnic which is just a quick a picnic in a park because it's a bit more sort of quiet if you're introverted or accessible if you have a disability or that's an interesting comment because that's yeah. what I found as well because somehow it seems to move away a little bit like from bars and club club culture and um, as I said I'm doing this event queer three this but I'm doing kind of a few events and mm. they're packed and I've really for the last two or three years really seen that there's a kind of a younger generation of queers but actually it's it's goes it's all sort of age ranges and they want to come to things like to read it, to queer readings, to sort of, um, that's kind of seems to be really the thing that people are excited about. Mm. Yeah, it's now, the, sort of, there's an appetite definitely. Yeah. And that's how you find your people, you yeah. know, you go to lots of different things and you kind of yeah. find your community that way. So sorry, I, this, uh, this really links in. So what you were saying about you know how Pride being corporate and people like UKIP being there, there's an amazing section thread that runs through your book, which is about you know in terms of the, the queer community in the Isle of Wight, and this thread that runs through about the sort of right wing young queers who join things like UKIP and EDF and start protesting yeah. and then at the end the switch to the Tories. Yeah. Where did that come oh, from? Yeah. I mean it was, it was really it was yeah. really stuck out. It's so terrible. there's um obviously this so this is everybody in the novelist working class. So there isn't I'm not deaf in and in no way am I doing like the middle class liberal as a as opposed to the working class UKIP person, yeah. This is something I'm completely displacing because I'm a working class person and if I'm eleven <laughs> and that's what it is. So there are just different working class queers in there that end up having different sort of, um, there's, and there's tensions between them because some of the, of the queers, there are the UKIP queers. They sort of come up and they're sort of threatening my characters with sort of, um, yeah, they're sort of like also an enemy, like there's quite a lot of enemies. This house mother normally is just one of them. The others are sort of the more the more sort of right-wing mm. queers. Yeah, and they end up switching to the Tories because this is, I've, I don't know where the inspiration come from, but I, I guess there's some, there are some younger ones and then at, at some point they're like, okay, but we've just done that for a while. We've heard about, mm. you know, Duke from my dad and that. then they want to actually... I think it says they decided to just join the Tories because there's better career. They might go into politics professionally and there's better career options. Something like that. So this, this, I mean, this connection, I know the Tories aren't UK, but I'd say it's a, sli it's a sort of a sliding slope. <laughs> but that but, narrative was a really fascinating yeah, narrative. And it also true. really reminds me of the Pasolini novel, the Ragazzi. Oh, that's With those kind of hoods, those little hood yeah. boys who just kind of have their own kind of arc in terms of how their allegiances yeah. move. Yeah. You know, based on, um, you know, the, co the wider conflicts that are going on with bigger, more dominant groups. And you, yeah. it's really how those small groups really just sort of navigate through yeah. and find their own power. I thought I it was amazing. So that's, that's correct, yeah.
So the other thing I wanted to ask you was, so that your book has lots, loads of references. That's a really amazing sort of reference section at the back. You know, I love there was a bit where, you know, you reference this amazing Dennis Cooper article on how to oh, yeah. build a pride flow. Oh, yeah. You know, you talk about, you know, there's a cameo from Tonya Harding. Oh, yeah. There's a, um, <laughs> there's a, there's a really great reference to um, Walter, um, than um, being oh, a yeah. dog's bear collection, collection. That's such an amazing look. I mean, did you ever think? I mean, you know, you're you're a sort of fiction writer through and through. But did you ever think that actually, at any point, this could have been an avant-garde non-fiction yeah. book? Yeah, just no, based totally. on the amount of you know <laughs> sources yeah. within this material that you constantly. Quote that's kind of really interesting. Yeah, that's that's better than I could have said it. So in a way, yeah, it's a fiction book, but it's a it's a non-fiction book at the same time because there I borrow so many figures from real life and so many references that is almost it almost is a non-fiction book. Maybe it's a completely non-fiction book because the other parts are autobiographical. Yeah. So it is a lot. It appears to be a fiction book, let's put it like that. But it sort of works across these distinctions, I guess. I kind of, it works, in my entire work, I've set myself the task to work across many sort of embedded distinctions that we've gotten used to in literature. So I'm working across this idea of there being a proper dualism between fiction and non-fiction. I'm working across it. I'm working across this idea of there being like a high culture, like literature and a low culture like Netflix. I'm on purpose sort of um, bringing them both in to sort of dis destabilize these, these sort of distinctions because you could argue they're also classist, aren't they? So you want to mm. sort of work across them a little bit. So And also, it reminded me a lot of um, in form, but it sort of exceeded the form, when Gordon Byrne wrote a novel called Born Yesterday, which was sort of mid-noughties. And it was a novel based on the news. And everyone's like, this is how novels are going to be. Someone's literally going to write a novel in a month based on what was happening. And you've kind of taken that form in a way, mm. you know, and it sort of transcended in terms of, you know, because it's a mixture of lots of different things. Mm. But, you know, you could put that next to each other. They would hold up incredibly well. Oh, but what, oh, but what you do so. is you, you put it on a, on a wider canvas because, you know... In terms of how we think of literature, it's really sort of moved on how people take, except what a novel is, mm. is, you know, different, for sure. Mm. So I guess we're kind of all doing that, though, like your book is super contemporary mm. as well. Mm. Yeah, I guess the challenge writing it was, how do I write this so it doesn't date before it even comes out? Because especially as Trump just does like something completely horrific to do with LGBT rights like, every two weeks. So that was definitely something I was thinking about, especially as it sort of sits within nonfiction, whereas like maybe it's not such a concern for you because uh, it doesn't. So, um, But do you not think it's important that it should feel that it is of this particular moment? Because I think... You I think what this book does is, I think it, it sits very firmly in the sense that this is this particular moment, but it's not weighed down by um, cultural references that will date. I think that's the, that's yeah. the beauty of it. Yeah, I think that my way around that whole thing about it dating was I'm going to talk to people about their lives and their mm. stories, and it's not going to be like, you know, mm. this happened yesterday. It's going to be how does it feel to experience transphobia? And there is, you know, there's statistics and stuff in there, but it's much more about the individuals and the characters. Mm. That was a way to stop it dating, but it was also um, a way for hopefully more people to sort of access these people's stories because I definitely didn't want to write something that was only read by LGBTQ people. I wanted straight people, mm. cis people to be able to read it and feel like it wasn't... It was it was accessible to them, and it also wasn't sort of yeah exclusionary um, because I'm not really interested in preaching to the converted. Um, yeah. So, yeah, but you I, still give a lot to the converted. Yeah, you know what I mean. I thought that was yeah, you know yeah. that was really beautiful. Yeah, there special. are definitely some chapters where we've got some topic overlap. So mm. there's a chapter where I speak to the mother of a voguing house. She's called Keila Beja. She's also an artist. Yeah, she's a voguer. She's a, she's an artist about lang language that's used in vo like ballrooms and voguing communities and that, how that's kind of passed through, like, I don't know, like RuPaul and Beyonce and Broad City into the popular consciousness um, and, and these forms of cultural appropriation and taking from ballroom culture. So there's that overlap. And then there's also a part in the book 
which is in the same chapter as I speak to Kia, um, where I go to the Anti-Violence Project in New York, which is a charity that fights homophobic, homophobic and transphobic violence, and speak to an organiser there called Lala Zanel, who is a black trans woman, and she's mostly working on the front lines of fighting transphobic violence in America. And the year that I interviewed her, 2017, it was like tw 26 trans people were murdered in America. And so it's also talking about invisibility and basically we have all these trans models um, and we have trans people walking down runways and we have trans people in front of magazines like Time. But actually, if you're not famous, there's a massive disconnect. It's just sort of, there's, there's this horrific um, epidemic of violence. So I think that's an overlap really because mm. it's talking about invisibility and yeah. that's something you explore. And about class and POC violence. Who has a voice. Gentrification mm. against working class, POC. There's a lot of overlap between mm. all of us. Yeah, for sure. So, this is, I think we've reached the question segment. Perfect. Of the evening. <laughs> Who would like to ask us anything? You've all talked about elements of cultural appropriation in terms of queer culture and as it becomes more mainstream. So, things like RuPaul or the Met Gala does camp. Do you think there's a concern that queer people and younger queer people in particular will lose sight of like the history of it and that the idea of like a specifically uniquely queer culture is sort of on the decline unless you find some kind of way to reclaim the history of it. I don't know what that would be, but some way of reclaiming the history of queer culture. Should I, st I, sh I start? Yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting because one of the brilliant questions, yeah, because um, one of the questions I was saying, was going to ask you is um, that you say it's a protest novel and it is, and at the, in a way it sort of combines two different registers of protest, like one is the sit-in sit -in mm. protest and the other is obviously voguing itself, which mm. is also like a, um, a pro kind of a form of protest, yeah, 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 isn't yeah, sure. it? And, um, but, so I was one of the questions I was going to ask you was um, whether we now need, to, in a way, to resort back to sit-ins and to sort of more m m these kind of like um, forms of protest because voguing itself has arguably lost its sort of um, radical potential in a way or its subversive potential. So that's one of the that sort of feeds with, through the complete mainstreamification, I guess, of drag and specifically. But I would even just really briefly say, even in terms of like the things that have been really widely appropriated, like drag. I mean, he, here we've got like people like David Hoyle. Do you know? Do you guys know David Hoyle? So there are still really radical drag happening. So why is we have this sort of more mainstream and glossy form? There is like people like like Legatosho Kola. Like there's still more underground. Mm. Um, drag going on and there are still grassroots queer cultures happening all the time so I think and, and also it's just a, a more visible way in for a lot of people you know if you're a teenager and your first the first time yeah. you ever heard camp was through the Met Gala and that opened something up for you that's pretty amazing yeah. you know that sort of gloss is always going to be there and especially in terms of how how um, you know fashion and all those kind of things spend a lot of money you know, drag race is so big. I mean, I said something the other day, like drag race essentially is like, you know, they're like the new pop stars. They're like complete sort of glamazon, you know, and that, that exists as a, a, as a really amazing thing. But if, if drag race is your way of learning about how amazing David Hoyle is and being part of that scene, then that's, you know, that's pretty cool. I think, I think this is something I'm trying to explore in the book. Like, people have different definitions of what radical means. So to some people, same-sex marriage is the most radical thing of all because mm. it's like, gay people are entering this institution and to other people it's like the ultimate sellout and I think drag is another example of that you know some people think it's really radical that drag is sort of this Trojan horse like RuPaul's Drag Race is like this Trojan horse that's sort of like sort of indoctrinated straight people into queer culture and I went to the RuPaul's Drag Race convention in LA and they were like Christian Republican people who go to church every week and watch RuPaul's Drag Race and some people think that's really radical and other people... But it is. They spend their money on those is, drag yeah. queens and make all those drag queens really rich. I mean, that's... Yeah. yeah. I mean, pretty amazing. But, um, to go back to what you're, what you're saying, I think is also what I was saying earlier, which is like, when, some, when it, something gets big or commercialised to a certain extent, it will always 
there'll always be a backlash and always be something new. And I think we've really seen that with drag. Like, I, I do see this sort of disnification of drag, mm. um, especially at that convention where there's it's like it's literally Disneyland. There's kids dressed up as drag queens, um, people spending hundreds of pounds on drag merchandise. But what I've seen in London, as drag has got more and more popular, is more kind of radical or interesting or alternative forms of drag ar mm. arise. Because as you get more competition, people have to get more original. Mm -hmm. so yeah. It actually can be really exciting. Yeah. And it still has a real punk element to it. You know, that kind of mentality. It does, it's not, you know, it'd be really interesting to see how drag race over here actually really translates. Mm. <laughs> Considering that the scene here is actually quite radical and it really just yeah, springs up. Are they going to do it? Yeah, yeah. They, they filmed oh, it. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not sure that and it's kind of interesting yeah. because obviously there's always a year in the drag scene, I guess there's always a lot of non-binary um, drag mm. artists like Victoria, Sin and yeah. Ray Fyler. So it'll be interesting like to see from a UK um, perspective if they acknowledge that, I mean. Yeah. Great question. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Hi, hey. It kind of uh, ties in actually to that question. I was just thinking about... Um, I wanted to ask you about the act of kind of archiving or kind of saving queer culture and that, you know, archiving is always you know, an act of like exclusion as well as inclusion and is traditionally done by institutions. So is there a way to, to archive queer culture and should it be archived? You know, and it kind of ties into like an oral tradition, which is so important, but also completely ephemeral and can be lost so easily. So I was wondering if any of you had any thoughts on, on yeah, if we can and should archive queerness. I mean, I guess... The, the three of us, to an extent, are archiving yeah. queer culture in our writing as well. I, const I, I, I really think of novels as, in terms of the queer mm. voice as being, you know, arc, you know, that, you, of that, you know, That's of true. each epoch. I mean, I was thinking a lot recently about um, when I first started writing this book, I, I read a, a copy of Dennis Cooper's poems from like the mid 90s. And it sort of made me a bit sad because I really thought about when I first discovered people like Dennis Cooper and Dale Peck and Pat Califia and Kathy Acker when I was about sort of 16, 17, sort of in the early 90s. And I felt there was a real sort of plethora and a real wave of like prolific queer writing and that was really angry, that had an agenda, that really wanted to say something and sort of really record its moment. And I sort of felt in the intervening years, especially sort of in the noughties, everything had got really cosy and I didn't really get a sense that that was there maybe in other art forms, but not in publishing. Mm -hmm. And I think what's been really interesting in the time that I've written this book, which took me like five years, is you can see how the publishing landscape has changed in terms of there does seem to be a wave of queer um, novelists, writers, poets and stuff, and, I, and uh, who are not only supported within the publishing community, but have a reach within their community and beyond. And I think actually just that proliferation of books is for me what will be the next sort of archive in our overall canon. Couldn't say it better myself. <laughs> no, there has been. I've, I've even written about this as liberating the canvas precisely a little bit about this, this idea that there wasn't really any sort of lively queer writing happening in this country um, for a long, long time in the dis or ever arguably, you know, mm. in terms of experimentation at the same time as queerness, there is really, it's a desert historically in Britain. And also, I think it, it shows actually that what, what happens is in terms of the cultures, we have to do it ourselves. You can't expect yeah. anyone else to do it. And I think, you know, that is... That's the idea. That's, the, that's like a characteristic it's of It's entwined with the whole nation of creating art. I think if mm. you're creating art constantly, after a while, you realise actually what you're doing has to contribute to something because no one else is actually going to archive it for you. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that. I said that one thing that's quite interesting is once you're starting to archive queer culture beyond your own experience, it becomes quite sort of complicated as well because, you know you have a responsibility to tell other people's stories. And also one thing I found was like, okay, how do I do this really broad book that, that's sort of a kind of primer on contemporary queer culture and speaks to all these different people and as, as inclusive as possible without leaving anyone out. So I definitely want to sort of tackle things like um, the intersection of race and queerness for certain people. But then how do I tell those stories as like a middle class, cisgender, passing, white lesbian, and it gets it, get, it can be quite difficult. And I don't know if that, I'm kind of interested actually, you know, telling other people's stories or, or creating other queer characters. Did you have anything to negotiate there? Because I definitely 
I had things to negotiate. And I guess the main thing I had to negotiate was like, do I feel like this person really wants to do this off their own back? Mm. And they really want they really want to be in it and they have a reason to be in it. And then I kind of felt like it was okay to sort of tell their story. So there's like an ethics involved in archiving. Yeah, it's something you have to think about. Archiving yeah. other people's stories. Yeah, definitely. I guess that doesn't really factor in 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 my case. No. So. Not that it's so egotistical. I think <laughs> no, you just is. do it and then worry it's about it after. I have to think about a lot. Yeah. Eleven. But the thing with oh, yours yeah. is what I said earlier is because you basically the vo the the voices is uh, are so strong. It feels like they are literally telling you their story. Yeah, um, they, yeah, they were, you know, yeah. <laughs> no, but unfettered by you know, it it doesn't feel like it's been edited in that way. That's you know, that's what well, how yeah, it should yeah. feel. Yeah, I guess some, someone I think actually I think it was Victoria Sin. I met up with them at the beginning and was like, "What have you?" What, and we had we were having a chat and I was like, "Oh, like how do I write the story of like queer people of color?" And then Victoria was like, "Just shut up and listen, yeah. and just like don't." Talk. <laughs> I mean, that was the advice. Yeah, pretty great. I mean, the ethics only comes in if you write down, like if you tell the story of somebody who is in a less powerful position than you. So I don't have that problem hardly ever. So I usually write up. I write about stories that are more powerful. Um, I sort of borrow people's stories who are more powerful than me, who might be like more middle class than me. Or, but I would always, I would. I'd be, I'd be careful of writing a black or brown person's um, experience because, yeah, I, you know. So there are ethics involved and you make a decision every single time. Isn't yeah. It? Thanks. This is, uh, this is for Isabel. Um, I wanted to ask, um, although you said that you feel like the ethics doesn't really um, apply because you're not writing down about people with the liberating the canon, how did you approach kind of like the ethical um, like like the ethical thoughts of who is it that will be included in in your book liberating the canon that's a good point because that is obviously an actual archive this edited book that i did liberating the canon and obviously i chose to include some writers that i arguably chose but any same with the reading series queer three this i guess but i do the whole point of liberating the canon is to include um, the most the, the writers who write the most innovative work, but who occupy the most traditionally marginalized subject positions, so to speak. So it is a lot of um, queers, a lot of working class people, a lot of transgender people, a lot of um, BAME people as well. But yeah, there's also always going to be people left out. And that's why I need to do another one or something like that. Because, yeah, there's always going to be at some point. But if I'm aware of them and I'm quite aware of this field, that, that field that's actually really, like Nif was saying, there's um, really tons of exciting stuff happening in queer writing right now. And as I said, arguably for the first time, properly, like in terms of like a, a wider, I don't want to use the word movement, but in terms of like a wider sort of development that we actually have a British innovative writing scene. Mm. And, I think um, as someone who doesn't read much experimental, like avant-garde writing, liberating the canon was really a, quite like a good in for me to like yeah. figure out what I like and what I don't like. And some stuff in it isn't that experimental actually, it's quite like true. narrative short story. Yeah. But it's like a good overview of what's going on and the people yeah. that contributed are amazing. Yeah. So I would recommend it. But did you think I've left people out in an awful way? I, I didn't think that. I was just wondering how you chose, like, like whether it was, uh, like, whether you had parameters that, that people kind of had to meet to be able to Yeah, know that in a way. There seem to be people sort of in my, in my sort of radar, but there's always going to be... Um, given that you've all concurred that this is a sort of not a glorious time, but a time where there's more, <laughs> um, but there's there's a time where more voices are being heard, is there not still a concern that those voices are going to be gatekept by the mainstream and there's going to be select voices? So, what's the kind of battle? Well, I mean, there's, there there is always a there is always a gatekeeper. I mean, you know, if you think about what's happening in publishing, for every one rise of colour that gets, you know, yeah. who gets the deal, there'll be another ten who, whose books just don't. I mean, you know, I think the only, the positive thing is that I just think that the gates are actually open, and I think there are people who 
you know, there's just more people in decision-making processes, A, who are of colour or who are, you know, queer or whatever. So I just think, you know, if you're writing novels, for example, I think you can find people to send your novels to who you don't have the baggage of having to explain what your work is. And I think that's really an important thing. But also I think like independent publishing is a really important area. And I think the digital space has really changed. You know, when I first write, started writing, when I was sort of 18, 19, sort of late 80s, early 90s, you know, I was typing stuff out and sending it to people. And there wasn't really anywhere that you could even show people your work. And now there's just a way to actually just make yourself visible beyond just okay well here's the novel what am I going to do with it there's just lots of things you can do and I think actually what the digital space does gives writers autonomy in the sense that you don't you know people feel that they don't need the gatekeepers they can find their way without it what's your experience with independent publishing as well in that sense <laughs> I've written an entire long essay about it. It's just gone like it's just been published last week. It's called Class Queers and the Avant-Garde. So if somebody's really interested in these subject matters, because I still think that British publishing is is um, is extremely elitist, and we're just sort of getting there. I think it's pressure from readers. I think because there is people want to read more diverse stuff. People want to read more innovative stuff. They don't necessarily. Um, it's like this assumption that people only want to read a particular version of language that has been cultivated, but people actually want to read different stuff as well. And so I think there's a, I, th I still think there's a lot of work to be done. Oh yeah, for sure. So it's been literally kind of just started. Yeah. And yeah, I'm publishing with a, um, it's, um, an indie press. They're based in Manchester. And it's great. <laughs> it's great, but at the same time, I don't have many of the privileges that come with um, with having a more commercial publisher at all. So it's a lot. I might sort of um, success in book sales depend on people, grassroots readers, actually going out and buying this stuff. There's still a lot of there's still a lot of you know this class inequities, especially in publishing, but hopefully. We get there, won't we? Thank you all Thank for coming. Thank you so much for coming. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.